0: Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled, where I've been talking about my life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in March of 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today, a very dear friend of mine is the guest on our show. Her name is Kelly Beck, And Kelly and I met each other a few years ago, and we have just been... I I just love her so much, and uh, we stay in touch constantly. And um, I asked her to be a a December guest of the show because I feel like this is a time of year where we really need a lot of nurturing. We spend a lot of December cooking and shopping and doing things for other people, and it's really easy to put ourselves last. And I always feel like a chat with Kelly – It just leaves me feeling really grounded and calm and loved, and I wanted to share that feeling with all of you. Well, let me tell you a little bit about my friend Kelly. As a young mom homeschooling four children, Kelly found herself with a deep passion for teaching and lifelong learning. And when the kids grew and everything changed, she recognized the need to focus on her own life and attend to nurturing her sobriety and recovery. In time, the two threads became woven together, and Kelly now combines education and recovery to help other women learn to take back their power and thrive without alcohol and other problematic forms of coping. Kelly per- pursued Karuna training, a contemplative psychology program, and she's now moved into the graduate stream. She's a She Recovers recovery coach, one of only three people to receive their prestigious signature designation, and she's the administrator of the She Recovers Together online group, a private support group with over 2,000 members. Kelly operates Shining Bright Recovery, where she helps women from around the world take charge of their recovery through coaching and personal support, and she also organizes and facilitates a monthly sharing circle in Seattle. On a personal note, Kelly's life took an interesting turn on a vacation overseas last year where and I'm not kidding, a handsome windmill owner stole her heart. It's a true life love story that Kelly never imagined for herself and she's here to talk about all of these things and more. Kelly,
1: my dear, dear friend, welcome to the bubble hour. Mm. So nice, Jean. Thank you so much.
0: I hope I'm not embarrassing, a, you guessing, you but embarrassing you by gushing. You are very well. I love you. <laughs>
1: Oh <laughs> so sweet. Thank you.
0: I know. You just live your life and do your thing, and, and you don't really focus on what other people think of you. But I love you, so Aww. I have to gush just a Aww. little. <laughs> what a gift. Thank you, Jean. So uh, we have lots to talk about, but I want to start with um, asking you about the... Um, Karuna training that you've taken because you've mentioned it a few times in our discussions and it's always so interesting to me, but I've never really got the whole picture of it. So tell me a little bit about this program that you entered into and what it is and what effect it's had on your life and how you interact with others.
1: Well, um, part of my recovery process has been to develop self-compassion. It's been such a huge um, foundational piece. And I was really drawn to the work of Pema Chodron, who everyone who knows me knows I love her so much, a Tibetan nun, um, who's just, whose work is just so far-reaching. And she, her voice and her writings on this were so soothing to me that I decided to get as close as I could to her, and it was by jumping into this training program, which is all about self-compassion. It, it starts with compassion for self, and then it's about how that ripples out to others. And to me, that changes everything. Is this program
0: created by Tema's work or based on her work, or is it sort of in um, alignment with
1: her work? It's alignment with her work, but it's, it's by the same, um, it's it's really the same school of thought. Um, and it began in Europe uh, over a decade ago, and now they're bringing it to the U.S. for training. And it really is really basically training little rays of light to people who are interested in this work to to spread it. And uh, I feel like it's, but it really starts a whole uh, first half of the training is all about you can't give what you don't have yourself. So it really is training in staying in compassion with yourself and then it's training in how to offer that to others and and be present for others. And I feel like it made such a huge difference in my life.
0: And I'm guessing that didn't come naturally to you. I mean, I met you after you entered into this program and it, it just it seemed natural to you, but Knowing that you're sober, that tells me that the journey that you were on before I met you <laughs> was not necessarily the path you're on now. So no. what did, what like did the first your life thing, look like before? Yeah.
1: The first thing I was recovering from, I realize now, um, was really perfectionism um, and codependency of um, really thinking everything was up to me, and if I just did it right and I could find out the perfect way, everything would run smoothly in my life. And when it wasn't, then it must be my fault. And that was a really heavy burden to carry. <laughs> um, and, and so I think then I think the drinking was just a flag to get my attention because I was hurting because I wasn't at some point as hard as I tried. My life wasn't going exactly as planned. And, and it was so distressing to me. And it felt like it was, it was all my fault. And so this whole way of thinking was really huge for me to realize that, you know, that not, this is a human condition um, I know I've shared with you and everyone I've worked with that, that quote from Pema that, that hit me, like, you are the sky, everything else is just the weather. Um, the idea that, you know, bad weather comes and, and good weather comes, and we don't get to take credit for either side. You know, we're just just part of being human, that good things and bad things will happen to us. And just that, that ability to see that helped me soften towards myself and, and, and not be so harsh. Do you think that that's an
0: epidemic among, not just our society, but but people that struggle with addiction is just a lack of self-compassion? I mean, the world says, oh, addicts and alcoholics are just selfish. They're just doing what they want. But I feel like they have it
1: exactly wrong, that it's a lack of compassion. I do think it's a lack of compassion and a real sensitive nature and a lot of really empathetic people who are, like, very caring and try really hard and feel, like, that it's not working anymore, and so they start to drink more and and it's because they're in pain of some sort they're trying to numb it, or they think they're not enough as they are, and so I just think it's a flag more than anything else
0: that hits home with me the numbing mm-hmm.
1: and just mm-hmm. the idea that I was
0: nothing, and mm-hmm. so as you learn to i mean you're you're connected with so many people, and you help so many people through your your business and then your personal life. Just I, I just feel like you're just like walking through the grocery store, you know, like <laughs> a little
2: trail of mm-hmm.
0: happy flower petals you, wherever you go. <laughs> and you don't see yourself that way and you don't endeavor to act that way. But when someone is peaceful in their core, it really resonates. Like, the people around them pick up on it. Do you see that, that other people seem to want what you have or are you just sort of walking, you know, in peace and, <laughs> well, I feel like
1: there is a a, there's a magnetic feeling when you feel like you are in alignment that feels really good and feels really electric, and I could feel that between people when i'm in interaction that feels good mm-hmm. um I always feel like you know I was younger i didn't i religion didn't work for me i just it, I never resonated a certain religion and I really wanted it to, but it just didn't but as I got older, I kind of realized um and when especially when something happened in my life where my daughter got really. Um, had a medical thing where it was really life-threatening. I realized I had nothing to lean back on, and I realized that I had thrown spirituality out with the bathwater, basically. I had mm-hmm. to really start working on that. And it has become, a, it's funny, because I was so not religious or <laughs> spiritual anyway, and now that's become something that's so important to me. And I do feel like it's the basis of my recovery path, is just really trusting life, trusting the process, um, not feeling... Like, I'm in it alone, um, you know, I, and that has made the difference of it not being all on my shoulders. And I really think for the first part of my life, I took it all on as if it was. That's, a, you know, just what a relief to know or to feel, you know, to really believe that, which I do, that, you know, when you do your best, that's when you are doing your best and you're living the best you can in alignment, then when bad things happen, you can take it more in stride.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't take it so personally. Tell us how long you've
0: been sober
1: for. almost five years,
0: oh my gosh, I know it goes by so quickly, doesn't it
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and some
0: days yeah, no. <laughs> did you and uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got sober and then how your recovery has sort of morphed over the past five years. So what did it look like in the very beginning?
1: Um, I got sober uh, so it two thousand and fourteen, and it was because I had core belief that. Uh, drinking went hand in hand with pleasure. That was I grew up with that uh, family and societal culture all around me. And um, wasn't until my dad really did start suffering huge negative consequences to his addiction to alcohol that it started piercing through. Like, wow, you know, alcohol often equates pain. And and I kept trying to like try to fix him or help him with it. And it finally started piercing through. I had to look at my own relationship with alcohol. And I really felt disappointed to have to look at that because I didn't think – I was so different than him. I didn't think my drinking looked anything like his. But I, I recognized some of the flags, and I recognized that when he was my age that, that it, it looked like fun at that point. It didn't look so bad. And I really saw I was on a continuum, my, and I decided to address it. And in my heart, I was really addressing it before I had to, like at a high, high level of like, oh, I have so much further I can go, and so do I really need to stop now? And I decided that I wasn't willing to risk um, having my kids experience with me what I was experiencing with him, and that was my yeah. main motivation
2: because yeah. um, it
1: was so painful um, to not be able to help him. And uh, he was so far in, that it was, you know, I felt like he couldn't stop. He was just having such a hard time. And so I thought I really 100% felt like I was doing a sacrifice, like I will not let this happen to my children. And that's what I, And I started doing all this research, at first for him, and then I kind of just started seeing myself and seeing how am I different than that, and um, and I just at one point just decided I knew too much, and I and when I didn't know I can kind of go through innocently thinking I wasn't hurting anybody, but once I started doing that research and I started realizing all all the stuff I learned, I just woke up saying I know too much to do this anymore. I can't, in good conscience, keep drinking. So um, I stopped and my I had. Uh, I tried a couple 12-step meetings, and it was just super hard for me to get to them. And I it just didn't end up working for me for whatever reason. And I kind of just did it on my own. I just decided to stop, and I, I had online support, which was really great. I really formed a gratitude group, and I really got into that. And then I discovered that she recovers um, the retreat in Salt Spring Island, and I signed a up for that. that you
0: return to regularly. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I did that, and it was—I was always very proud that I was the first American because at that time, they were really new, and yeah. um, and I just felt, and so all then I just loved that because I, I just got to know this really empowered way of being, with other women who weren't drinking, who were living these thriving lives, and who really, um, you know, just helped me identify with other people, even though all my support was in Canada at that time. <laughs> I just knew I wasn't alone.
0: Yeah. And what, did you go through grief when you quit drinking? Did you experience that losing a friend kind of feeling?
1: I did. I remember when I realized I have to stop drinking. It was really like I was really felt sad about it because it was something that was such a core part of my life of celebrating and and getting through you know hard times. But I just I couldn't even imagine vacationing without it or or all the things that it was just interwoven as my whole adulthood. And so it was like, how am I going to do this? But I was really determined that there, I, I wanted to prove it could be done to myself and uh, my dad. And I wanted to show my children that you can have fun, you can live a full life without it, which is what I've been telling him for years. But I really needed to walk the talk. Hmm.
0: Your kids are in their late teens and 20s now. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. do they think? They know about your sobriety. What do they think of it?
1: They're super proud of me, and um, we talk about it all the time. We just talk about it super naturally. As I began to do my research, I would just share with them and kind of awe about how our society pushes it and how hard it is to make this healthy choice and why is that. So I just kind of would share my aha moments with them. And so recently my 24-year-old son even thanked me for being so, like he's so thankful that I'm on this path because as he's pushed and this alcohol, so culture to drink. Like he just feels so much more educated. He doesn't just take it as a given, like so many people do, like I did at that mm-hmm. age. Um, he really questions it, and he, he's very thoughtful about it, and making really thoughtful choices. And I feel like all my kids are, you know, very thoughtful about it. And if they do drink, they're going to do it with a, a real awareness that I didn't have. I think my my idea that I try to teach him is like it's a drug. <laughs> you know, look at this. It's a drug you're putting in your body just like any other drug. And so if you have any drug, you do it really mindfully and with caution. And what I think that your...
2: that
1: had a good effect on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, just think about it. Just think about what you're doing. I mean, not mm-hmm. alone. Um, yeah. What was your drinking pattern, Kelly? Were you a daily drinker, binge drinker? How would you categorize what drinking looked like for you the last you know, year of your...
1: I was, um, I think I, 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 ever since I was young and when I did start drinking, like, I would drink, I would think of just then drinking, like, everyone I knew, basically, um, in college and stuff, and then um, just every once in a while I'd have no stop sign, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, oh, I hope that doesn't happen tonight. I wouldn't feel like I had control over that. <laughs> I never knew when that would happen, and mm-hmm. that didn't stop me, but that should, looking back, that would have been a flag that alcohol wasn't a great mix for me ever since the beginning. Um and I talked to someone who had said, you know, if, you're, if you had, I said, well, I drink normally most of the time, but sometimes my stop sign doesn't work. And, and he said, well, would you drive a car where the brakes didn't work sometimes? And wow. That always stuck with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the end, the thing that got me was that I, when I tried, I didn't really think I had a problem in my mind until I tried to stop in support of others, right? And when I think a lot of people, I think, well, you don't think you have a problem until you try to stop. Yeah. And, and when I was trying to stop in support of others, then I really realized, well, then I started to get sneaky. Then I started to, you know, rationalize why I deserved to have a drink. And, um, and I re- it really came to the forefront of my brain that, wow, this is super important to you. It's not that easy just to put it down. Like I was saying, well, I'm a normal drinker. You're not. You need to stop drinking. Um, and so I always think that's an interesting angle when I hear about spouses being supportive of one another. Because if a spouse, I think, because I was that, like I'm that type of person, where it's like, here, I'm saying you can stop. <laughs> then <you> know, <laughs> but don't That's make that me when stop. the test comes. That's when the yeah. test comes. Like, <laughs> um, So that's it. so when, I, when that was a point where I kind of committed, well, I'm going to stop in support of you, it came to my own attention, and that's when I, I just realized, wow, this is a lot bigger deal, because I was then drinking daily, more um, like two glasses of wine all of a sudden didn't seem enough, <laughs> And it was kind of that last year where I started to get my attention, yeah, and yeah. also it was the last year where um, my marriage was really i was in a painful place with very long term marriage and and I kind of got cognizant of the fact that I wasn't drinking for pleasure i was I was really clear in my mind I'm drinking to numb, and that really turns it. I can't rationalize that i'm oh this just tastes good with a meal or For the health of my digestion. Right. It's so good no, for like, my heart. I mean, why, why are you drinking? And then if my answer is, to numb, duh. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> I don't feel right if I don't. Right. Um, like, it's my medication. And I kind of started seeing it like medication. Like I kind of didn't trust other medications. So I thought, well, I know what alcohol is. And it helps me feel better right now. And it just switched from, even in my mind, I kind of knew it wasn't for pleasure. I knew it was to numb. Yeah.
0: It had become essential.
1: And now I look back and I think it really was the thing, like, lo- like other things can be. Food can be this way or are all everything people are addicted to can be this way. It could look different. Alcohol is one way where it was helping me tread water and not look closely at my life. It was helping me extend that period of not making hard choices. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was like a buffer between me and my reality that helped me kind of check out a little bit because – It was so painful and scary to have to really look closely at my marriage or, you know, at things that needed to change.
0: And after
1: you uh,
0: quit drinking, it was after that that you did end up getting divorced and found yourself on your own. And I bring this up because I know you help a lot of women, and I hear a lot of stories. And one common pattern to me that really undermines it either undermines women's efforts to stay sober, or if they are drinking, it really ramps up their addiction. And that is um, being a single parent and having shared custody or having the kids you know, go back and forth.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: a lot of women are really gutted by those days when their kids aren't with them. Mm-hmm. And And some women aren't gutted by it. They feel freed by it, and they're not worried about the pattern that they have, which is, you know, I have no kids, I can go out and have fun, um, which might be okay at first, um, if that fun includes a lot of alcohol or drugs and alcohol, but, you know, it becomes a problematic pattern. So I feel like having gone through just years of single parenting yourself, I'm guessing you have some insight around that and some particular sympathy for what women in particular go through. I'm sure men go through it, too, to some degree, but Especially for women, I feel like our worth and our identity is often tied to our role in the family. how do you see all that? What does all that look like from your perspective?
1: Well, I mean, uh, this whole—I mean, all women go through loss around this age of kind of midlife, mm-hmm. because even under the best of circumstances, your kids grow up, they fly away like they're supposed to, um, and maybe your identity has been as a mom and that's been a joyful part of your life. And then even under the best of circumstances that shifts. Um, And so I think when you go through divorce, there's added dimension of, Mm -hmm. you know, everything shifted. I went from a family of six to like, you know, getting divorced after 24 years. My my husband left my, my, my oldest son moved out to a different state and my second son went to college. So suddenly I was in this family of three, like overnight within like six months. Mm -hmm. And, it was a very radical adjustment for us, and we moved houses, so we were in a little, you know, totally different life of, you know, from a house we loved to a small house, and it was just, it was so, um, it was so much loss, but also there was so much growth interwoven with that, um, and it was all healthy. I felt every bit of it was healthy. And so I ended up, and I I say this a lot too, I just like, I ride the waves, you know, I just ride the waves of the feelings that come up. And sometimes it is grief and sometimes it's really joy. Um, Another quote I love is, you know, feel the feelings, lose the story. And so that's been something I think of all the time. I think feel the feelings, like I don't need to be locked in of, oh, everything's great, or I don't need to be locked in, everything's horrible. I could just kind of feel it as I go. And so this thing of single parenting has that, just like all parenting has that. But the relentlessness of you don't have someone to trade off on, on a daily basis, like that's a big thing I think for any single parent. And um, and it feels it's a big it's a, a big load, but it's also there's a beauty in the growth that everyone's growing. And even our divorce, I decided it was the most loving thing to do for all involved. And since that was so, we can go forward even though it's some bumpy bits, just really feel like, you know, it's it's all growth in the end. We're just and we're we are a family. Just a different form.
0: See and I love so that's that perspective really on this. Because <clears throat> there's always a there's always a way to look at things with positive opportunity. Um, I think both you and I when we quit drinking we really felt like we were losing something, like we had to go through life without alcohol. And that uh-huh. that was like a life of lack rather than a life uh-huh. of abundance.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, and then you discover down the road, oh, you know what? I I may lack alcohol, but I have more capacity for emotions, good and bad, and more time and more
2: uh-huh.
0: brain space and and um, more healing and all that. So so it turned out that that was you know that was only one perspective to see abstinence as a life of lack and i yeah. hear you saying the same thing about changes in our relationships or changes in our uh, our life status i guess i uh, you know i asked a question about single moms but the fact is you're right it is anyone that's going through a change um, that feels like a loss and to reframe it as an opportunity for something new
1: and that, you know there is loss i mean no matter what for everyone but it is it is and it's easy when i'm divorced i think it's all cuz of that that I feel lost, but really, it would happen anyway. My sons would have moved out. I mean, there's just different things that happen, and divorce is an extra element. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been so grateful to be sober for it because I feel like I've really um, been forced to really grow along with it, versus continued trying to uh, numbing. Or I, I'm really grateful to be present for whatever emotion comes up, and and I just feel like I come out all oh, the other side much cleaner if I feel it as I go. And I think that. Yeah. I see that if I numb, the emotion's still going to be there, it's just going to be buried, and I might not be able to identify the source. Um, it, it it doesn't go away; you just postpone. Um,
0: is that something you really work on? I want to talk a bit. I want to shift and just talk a bit about coaching. Um, I often encourage people that write to me that you know they don't know where they want to start, and. I always try and connect them with as many resources as I, I can, and coaching is is one of those options. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about coaching and what um, what role it plays in recovery, or even just being sober curious. Um, how that can be a helpful tool.
1: Well, I really love coaching because I feel like it's um, what I was. What I would have loved when I got sober is the role I'm providing now, and it really is just another woman who's ahead of me on the path to let me know I can do it. Who's holding space for that, and cheering me on all the way. I really love to provide it in a really empowered approach, of like a, I really like a life doula or a, a sober doula. You know, it's this idea that you can do it um, and that just like a doula, like you're not the doctor, I'm not a therapist, and I'm not there to diagnose you. I am there to really let you know you, that you're strong enough to get through these, especially the early months of sobriety or whatever life change. And sometimes it's not sobriety I'm working with. It could be divorce or it could be any life change when you're feeling that need to grow. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do it alone. And I think that sometimes when we talk to people we know, they have their own fears. And it's, I always just say, like for the women I work with, I get to concentrate on them and whatever's coming up for them, and exactly their angle. And I think we can all use that in our lives. I um, love especially it. women are are so used to being so considerate. Oh, you know, they you could think of your children's point of view, your partners, your mothers, or <laughs> and it's like such a treat to have your your own energy held and supported.
2: Hmm.
1: So you. I think that's a people, tool in itself.
0: Uh, totally. Yeah. And I, it's it it sounds like a. A drink of water, really, because it's something that the world doesn't, we're so busy, we just don't, I mean, we ask people, how are you doing, as we're walking away from them, hi, how are you, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't don't bother me with the details, I don't really want to know, um, yeah. and just to have someone hold that space for you is so lovely. Um, we talk a lot about patchwork recovery on the bubble hour, because I feel mm-hmm. like, um The earlier, people are getting sober earlier in their trajectory because we are in the age of information, and information is power when it comes to Mm -hmm. recovery. Um, We're we're identifying red flags earlier. We're more aware of health. We're more willing to try different things. And so for people that are intervening in their addiction trajectory earlier, I feel like that's when we have the most options, the earlier that we catch it. And that's when we, we have the most choices. And as we go further and further into it, I mean, it goes from being a chronic problem to an acute crisis that needs you know a specific type of intervention. So, would do you feel like there's a winning combination? Like, if you could if you could say like what what three or four things would you suggest that? anybody does or everybody should do should have in their recovery toolbox are there any like staples that you would recommend people include at
1: the beginning um i just really think it's super important i i I see what works is to have accountability to somebody um like at the very beginning especially to get over the hump of you know the first few months to change your gears just of the habit of drinking it's so easy to keep putting off um when waiting for a good time. And I just feel like um, when you have accountability to someone, that's a huge factor of like, you know, you kind of make an agreement to yourself of a timeline that you're, to me this is the, the thing that helps you just begin is a container of time where I'm agreeing to get through even hard days without drinking. And to be accountable, I think that um, to me that's a big one. And also I really think a gratitude practice changes everything because I think that addiction and the slippery slope of addiction feeds on um, connecting the dots to the negative, and I think a gratitude practice really, even in the darkest moments, you could if you could find the jewel of gratitude, like then you're not feeding that part of you that says, "Well, I deserve a drink. Um, anyone would drink <laughs> during this."
0: Explain um, explain a gratitude practice. What does that look like? Um,
1: to me, I feel like you know gratitude is it sounds lightweight, but it's a serious muscle that that if you just do that on a daily basis, graduate practice of finding a few things in your day to be grateful for that go beyond, like it's easy with the weather or my healthy children or my home, but to really like when you're stuck in traffic, to really be like, well, I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity to finish this podcast. I'm grateful there are podcasts. I'm grateful that, um, you know, when my kids are having a hard time, I'm I'm so grateful uh, that we're all home together because, you know, I love these kids, and to really dig for the jewel in it versus, and it kind of helps you pull back versus mm-hmm. getting mired in the muck, which is so easy to do. So, and can I just, we just do like, it like
0: in our thoughts, or do you recommend writing it down,
1: or why write, write it like down? It? And I actually think that's another thing. That if you can even have a witnessed, um, if you had a group of people, if there's, I do that as a coaching part of my coaching. That I will, it's something that we. People will tell me what day they're on and they'll share their gratitudes and I have, we kind of have a little pen pal feeling during the week of email exchanges and I love that because I feel like it, there's another accountability factor built into that of you think, well, I was just grateful like the other day, but to really do it on a daily basis when you don't feel like it is probably the time you are adding a weight to your muscle building. And then, I it was like, because I really practiced that, then when really hard things happen, like, my dad died, my grandma died, like, during the last few years. And I was, like, able, because I practiced on ordinary days, to have that muscle really ready for the heavy lifting days. And I feel like you can't start on those heavy lifting days with, it's like, it's, you need, uh, Pema says, you need to start with bourgeois suffering. You know, the extra easier things. Bourgeois mean, suffering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like when you're in the movie and someone's sitting in front of you and you can't see quite right. You know, someone's too tall or, or easier like you kind of, like we'd call first world problems, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and but I well, I realize that because when you know se- seven years ago my daughter was hospitalized for that scare I had nothing, and I realized you don't get a start there, with a practice of any sort. You know, you need to be building it up kind of in times of peace. <laughs> yeah and um I love that. and I've really worked hard at that, and I really feel like that's then it's become like an engine within me that that burns my day It's like so if something happens, it goes through that filter, and I don't have to work very hard at that and I've had really hard things happen, and I just feel like i've it's not a Pollyanna thing, it's really a muscle to me, yeah, so yeah. gratitude's a big part, and accountability, and I think connection um and I think nowadays with the online uh, support groups—it's so huge—and connecting with other women who are who are doing this in our communities. If you can find people, which the online really helps with that. And the, you know, I love the retreats. I love all the ways to connect with other women who are just like us, and really mm-hmm. um, coming at this life choice, sobriety, or whatever they're giving up, with an empowered approach. Because it really is not about sacrifice to me. It's about choosing to live my best life.
0: Yeah. I love um, the talk about connection because <clears throat> one thing that kept me from connecting was that, you know, it's really protective of the life that I'd built and the public image that I had in my town <clears throat> because it was related to my business, which was responsible for my livelihood. But also I think I had a little bit of um, part of being caught up in the illness and I think that our addiction really leverages um, grandiose thoughts or maybe it perpetuates grandiose thoughts but I really felt like um, everyone was going to notice and it was really going to be like a public shaming if people knew about this aspect of my life Mm -hmm. and you know and I could really argue that quite Um, quite believably like to myself and to others like I know it's okay for you to be public but it's not okay for me to be public and here's 30 reasons why Mm -hmm. and um, uh, so I kind of put my foot in the water of online stuff and felt very safe there and very supportive and over time you know added my picture my first name and Nothing happened, and then over time, you know, I was like, "Well, this seems to be helping people," and I've written a lot of material by this point, and you know, and also I was starting to publish on other websites, and I, so I just had to make the decision whether or not to put my name out there, and then after doing that, I started meeting people at retreats right around the same time, and you know. Without naming any names, I mean, we've all experienced that. I mean, I hear people I've met people in New York who are like, "Oh yeah, you know, we see news anchors or we see you know pe- people that you that the public would recognize definitely, of course, they're in meetings because it's a cross section of life, right
2: mm-hmm. and
0: at retreats, you know, and on this show, I mean, I have had politicians, I have had a neurosurgeon and um, uh, you know, a daughter of a prominent politician and um, I don't want anyone to be scared as I'm like (laughs) talking Uh about their angles I'm not going to I wouldn't name names but it almost wouldn't matter if I did because the point is there are other people with really good reasons to want to protect their identities too and yet when I Uh met them I was like you know it just it didn't I was like well they're a big deal in their world but here we are we're just two people Mm-hmm. and what feels like a big burden to them to carry actually when you're in a recovery community, all that kind of goes away.
2: Mm-hmm. And you
0: you just get to be who you are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is so freeing yes. to set aside the mask and the armor that we wear out in the world and bring, like my visual image of myself when I was in early recovery, in active addiction and early recovery was that I was wearing like this big kind of suit of armor like it it was the external gene, and inside was like this shriveled you know like how your fingers look when they've been in water too long like it felt like my whole body was like this puckered shriveled little white soft Mm -hmm. goo inside (laughs) and uh and it just felt so good to like air myself out and take that off and and start to own who who I really am instead of who I built up and, and what my addiction built up. Yeah. And so, you know, I just say all that in testimony to the importance of connection, that that the mm-hmm. thing that scared me the most freed me the most mm-hmm. and really was the most important part of tearing down that false
1: image of myself. That really was keeping me sick in a lot of ways. It's so and, true. Um, and I, I just think for me, like, everyone's different about how they approach it. But for me, I had a hard time with labels and I had a hard time with identifying. Um, so I, I don't say, I just say I don't drink is how I approach not drinking. I, I'm super proud of that because I think it's a, something that's not easy to do in our world. And I'm really, now I've, I've got to be really comfortable with that. Um, but even the word recovery, I had a hard time identifying. Even I'm a recovery coach, and I was like, what does that mean? Um, and a little bit of a, like, even all labels are hard for me. And so when I really thought about what recovery means to me, it really is recovering my essence. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I really think everyone would ideally strive to be in recovery because it is about, you know, we build up in our lives all these layers to protect ourselves and to get by in the world and labels and roles. And a lot of them, you know, they serve their purpose, but then we kind of can lose sight of that essence and who we are and, and what really lights us up and 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 especially I, I think the women I work with it tend to be in this really midlife time where you know it is shifted you you did a good job you you built up your life you your job and your your mothering or wherever you're at with all these roles that really probably fit at the time but it's just time for some new growth <laughs> and then you have to start recovering yourself like who am i mhm it's like reclaiming,
0: almost, reclaiming yeah. yourself or rediscovering yourself.
1: And then when um, alcohol is like, what did I like to do before I added that to the equation? Right. And I think that a lot of people are going back to finding out what that source of joy was or or how can I have fun and be myself in gatherings without that element.
0: And that for me, too, there's been an element of what did I always want to do that mm-hmm. I just never seemed to get around to. Mm-hmm. And I I bought a box of watercolors and have started
2: just playing mm. with
0: painting and I am not an artist
2: That's why right.
0: I'm just tending to this thing that I always wanted to do and mm-hmm. um, uh, like I had never made time for it before there's mm-hmm. there's no reason
2: mm-hmm. I, I
0: could always say I was too busy but the fact was I just never made the time mm-hmm. and now I have it
2: mm-hmm.
0: and in doing that there's a whole bunch that comes out of that right?
2: Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. so
0: right, what did I like to do? I mean I, we weren't drinking daily at you know, even at
1: fifteen or well somewhere, but <laughs>
0: you know when well, you, when yeah, I remember age, watching the days were my, watching my kids fun.
1: at it. yeah my teens were at a dance, and they were having so much fun and all their friends and and they weren't drinking, and I thought, oh my gosh, how do they even do that and um I, there was something so admiring, and when I thought of my kids, the idea that they might think they need that to have fun when yeah. I could see so clearly that they could have fun without it it made me so sad um yeah. that I, I that's how I thought I thought that, and so you know about myself, and I feel like that is not self-compassion. It's not good self-care for us to really think we need this product to have fun um, or order relax. And so I think when you don't when you don't do that, you really are face to face with finding a replacement. And then you, that's when you do pick up the watercolors or or get comfortable um, with your nature. Like for me, often it is choosing to stay home and. And getting in bed and reading a good book is is my nature, and being comfortable with that that um, that is a fun Friday night for me often. So yeah, and I'm at peace. <laughs> and you don't need to make excuses for that, right? No, I mean almost Sometimes, like I realize if if I go to a party or if I go somewhere and I'm out and I think I need to drink to have fun, then maybe that's not the party for me. Right. 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 I should be as so you and I we, know when we've been together, we're laughing so hard, at, you know, like we're having so much fun without it. That is a, that's my body telling me this is a good fit yeah yeah
0: um, some of the growth that we experience in this new life that we have recovered, reclaimed, restored, rebuilt uh it's not always just easy peasy sometimes there's a leap of faith involved and uh a little bit of fear and, and and some new awakenings and I say all this in setting up the story of uh you and uh the windmill man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Well, that's a fun story right now because, um, you know, I went through my divorce. So I was married 24 years. And I, um, I really just thought, like, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm going to, that's, I don't, I'm not these people who are going to be having, you know, that romance in my life or love in my life. And I'm at peace with that. And I went forward just to really be happy myself. And I really dove in for the next few years of, you know, really getting to know myself and, and really invested my energy. In me, which was great, um, and I really cherished that time because it was it was a time where I could find out what does spark my joy, in a time of huge growth for me, where I saw you at many retreats, <laughs> and <laughs> um, you know we and I just I, there was something really special about that time. I feel like it was part of my like a caterpillar to a butterfly time of like transition transformation and and just putting all that energy that I would put into someone else into me. And after years of being a codependent person, that was really a revelation um, that I could be super happy and just be on my own with friends with my children living my life and that it wasn't about finding a man Um, and I did that and one of the things that happened was because of my sobriety my 24 year old son 23 at the time invited me to go on this adventure to Europe and he said "Um, mom would you want to go with me and I want to I want to take you to this place he had been in, in the Netherlands. And he said, You'll just love it. It's the cutest town. And I need to take you and let's do this. And another part of my story was that during that time, I kind of started saying, I'm going to say yes to everything I can that comes in my path. Like, you've heard that idea, like the year of yes. And that was kind of yeah. what I did. Like, my brain at first for everything was like, You can't do that. My first response is always no, because my brain will do that. And I just, I always think it through. Like, this isn't, if this is coming to me, like, why can't I? And I was really lucky to have, you know, support a mother to help me with my other kids and who really encouraged me, like, you have to do this. And so I really just jumped at the chance to travel with my son. And we, you know, rented a, stopped in Iceland for a week and we rented a camper van. We had so much fun. And it was just something I never would have done sober. I don't think he ever would have invited me because it was all about just being in nature. And it was all about, you know, just it wasn't about my old way of traveling which would have been restaurants and shopping and, you know, going to cool bars. And um, it was just about really the simple things and having a great adventure and hiking. And, and so we went from Iceland and then we went to Netherlands and we had uh, booked Airbnb, a windmill, and, and it was just almost, it was kind of like a fairy tale because I smacked dab brand to the first person that, <laughs> that I was like, just like, oh, my goodness, uh, there you are. And it was kind of a funny feeling to, after so many you know three years of head down working on myself to to meet so this So this was that, the Airbnb host picked you up?
0: Yeah, at the airport? Yeah, that, he picked right? us up. Yeah.
1: And he, he was pretty cute, and
0: you had some flutters cute. there.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, some flutters, and then uh, and then uh, he he lives in the Windmill, and we stayed in the house he had built next to the windmill, and um, that was the last September. And then since then, now I've been over there. Uh, two times, and we'll go back next month. And we went to Paris last month, and it was just very exciting that things have really started to um, you know, to go in that direction that I never saw coming.
0: Yeah, I, I remember talking to you at the time, and I mean, I, I was um, following your adventures on Facebook. Um, Kelly is an amazing photographer, and, and when she travels, she posts the most beautiful pictures. And the funny thing about traveling with Kelly is that she and I will take a picture of the same thing. And when I look at mine, it's not quite, it doesn't look quite as good as the original, so I delete it. And when I look at Kelly's, she found a way to capture what was beautiful about that moment. So I love looking at the world through your eyes because I really mm. feel like you we see the same things. And when I look at it through your eyes, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, you're really appreciating the scenery much more than I was. So you helped me see things. So I was following your adventures on that trip, just following the pictures you were posting and thinking how cool it was that you were seeing, on this neat property. And then we talked when you got back, and you were like, oh, yeah, I really, you know, I really kind of felt something for this person, and that was an awakening.
2: <laughs> and,
0: um, and in saying yes to that, I mean, I think most of us would be like, oh, darn, you know, a handsome person who I could totally see myself with, but lives in another country, so wah, wah, I guess that's not going to happen. But no, Kelly, who says yes, just (laughs) takes a leap of faith and and makes this happen. And um, so you've had some pretty cool experiences in terms of um, I know you you went on a boat you took a
1: you kind of went boat camping is that what you'd call it We <laughs> went boat camping through the canals of holland that was beautiful and yeah and um yeah because it's, it's just a beautiful life over there and i think that was the first thing beyond that i was attracted to him was just i kind of thought i would fall in love with anyone who had made this beautiful life it was such a beautiful life there and then the more i talked to him there's more and more that were like oh my gosh so many things in common and and it really did feel like, wow, how amazing. My son and I are here, and it felt meant to be. Because even when my son said, you want to go to this little town in the Netherlands? I thought, oh, but there's all these other places in Europe I haven't been. And I didn't argue. It was just more like, yes, I want to go where you want to take me. And it just felt very, um, it just was really beautiful. Like, oh, and then it has just proven, you know, we, you know, over time that we, it just does feel really like that was just meant to be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we've had beautiful experiences and Really exciting, and I do. Um, when I left my marriage, I just do feel like I, I like I wrote to you, the idea that, that quote. You know, what if I fall? But what if I fly? All I could focus on when I left the marriage was the loss, and and it was really scary and hard to do, and feeling like, you, you know, you just can't see all the good that will come your way if you let go of something that's not working for you, and that's true for drinking. And it's true for anything that's causing you to feel like you're not growing. Um, that to have that faith that you know that there's going to be good things that come is not just what you're letting go of. What are you making room for? Right. You know, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another, and, and and so when you hold on to something that's not working, you're really not allowing space for whatever other beautiful thing could fill its place. And I feel like my life has been you know just really affirming of that feeling of of the beauty um, taking the place of. The things I'd let go of you're so wise <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love how i I think you need your own podcast, you need to write a book um we you and I have talked a lot over the years, you know in our own personal discussions of how what an awakening it was to to sort of learn about codependency and understand how that pattern was affecting our life. And I remember you saying that your criteria for friends and relationships was, if you like me, then I like you. Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to make you like me? Mm -hmm. Um, But once you start healing and being really true to yourself, you know, you have to be really vulnerable to go into a relationship or a a new romance and be willing to say, I'm going to show you who I am. Mm -hmm. And if, if that isn't, what you're into, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay true to myself mm-hmm. and, and trust um, that that's the right thing to do.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so does that feel, was that a scary thing to do or had you worked on it, like you were talking about with the gratitude, is that the kind of thing that you have to work on so much ahead of time that then when you get into that position, that muscle is strong and, and ready for action?
1: I do think that's another muscle of just um, being true, being in alignment with myself is comes first in my life, and I do feel like that's something that is such a core value to me now that it affects how I go in any relationship. Um, and I do I I've worked enough on my own self that like um, I'm at peace if I'm alone, and so when I'm spending time with someone, I really feel like it's because it makes my time better, <laughs> and I enjoy it and and I really do have, I'm not reactionary to relationships anymore. I do choose them. And I think our time is our biggest gift. And so that's changed a lot for me over the years and this time. And um, with, with a romantic relationship, it is has pushed me to a new edge because there's a vulnerability in that that was new for me because it is um, it is a deeper vulnerability. Because when you really start to care and and. and and the other person has this power to hurt you, basically, right. yeah. because you've opened up your heart. And I've said to some people at first, I felt like a turtle on my back. But it was hard for me to get my bearings when I really, as my heart started to open, like this little part started, this little vulnerable part of me that didn't dare to even think this was in my life, you know, possible for me. I kind of shut it out. So there, I, I, found, I came to a new edge of armor, like, oh, I was safe in the zone of not caring mm-hmm. and being on my own. And there was a safety feeling to that. And um, it was funny that even as these feelings felt really great, that I did feel hugely vulnerable. And it was just a new edge. And I realized that that's what our life is like. There's always going to be new edges. And so I've had to, I have had to work through that and get comfortable um, and kind of go forward with that quote that we love of strong back, open heart. i mm-hmm. really feeling like I am solid in my core and I'm going to open my heart. And risk being vulnerable because I know that that strong core in me is always here, and and that's true. And and if you you do take risk and you can get hurt, and you'll be I'll be strong enough no matter what to, to handle my life and to trust that.
0: In the minutes we have left, let's take everything we've talked about. The gratitude, the connection, the accountability, the strong back, open heart, the being grounded in ourselves. And just talk for a few minutes about how we can employ all of those tools through the weeks ahead because the holiday season can be so hard on people. There's so many triggers. A lot of us during this time are spending extra time with our family of origin, which can be super triggering um, we might be with the people we love. we might be away from the people we love and wish we were with them. We tend to be overspending over over overgiving uh, overdoing on the cookies in my case um, mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot of like it 's a very wobbly time just in terms mm-hmm. of self care and and staying grounded and um, and then it it 's like the one two punch of of the um end of the year holidays and festivities and then new years which is probably you know the the thing i love about new years is that so many new people make the resolution to quit drinking on new years and and we see such an an influx of, of people that are really excited and ready to make a change. And the thing I hate about it is that it destabilizes so many people that are just finding their ground. So mm-hmm. can we wrap all of that up in a ball mm-hmm. and just... <laughs> Can you just say five very succinct, perfect words (laughs) about
2: all that? Uh
0: (laughs) No, I just, what what advice do you give to people that you're coaching? Wait, you don't give advice. What areas do you focus on with the people that you're coaching as the holidays near?
1: Um, I really think that it's always come down to um, really putting your own self-care first and knowing that that is extra important when you're under stress of, you know, putting your own oxygen mask on first so you can be there for others. Um, and we can all feel the difference when we're doing that or not doing that. And um, check in with yourself about, with all the different things that are coming up, like how you're doing. And if this is something, what you're doing that day is something you really want to be doing <laughs> in the first place. And, and I think it's okay to, to say no to things and it's okay to reach out for extra support um, and, and, to, and then give from that place that's full rather than a place that's empty.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sometimes people
0: find themselves locked into situations they can't get out of. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Thanksgiving, where um, someone in an online group was messaging that she was going to a family event that was really uncomfortable and super triggering for her, and we were all saying, "Listen, you don't have to go to this. You, mm-hmm. you really—that's the first thing. A, you don't have to go. Whatever, mm-hmm. whatever." Y- you are telling yourself about all the reasons why you have to. You literally do not have to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if you if you had I don't know if you suddenly came down with food poisoning, you wouldn't be going. I mean, there's there's things that can yeah. make you not go. So you literally mm-hmm. don't have to go. But B, if let's say you're already there and <laughs> you can't get out of it, or for whatever reason you you couldn't extract yourself out of it, what are some tools to get through that really uncomfortable? Evening or weekend for someone who's trying to maintain sobriety in a in a non-supportive, possibly alcoholic environment.
1: Well, I would always uh, make sure you bring what you want to drink. So make sure that you have you know some kind of drink that makes you happy that you're coming in with for sure. And I would just have a plan of 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 who to reach out to. And I remember in my early days or in times of stress, where I would sometimes go to the bathroom and be texting or uh, going on onto online group for support and saying. I'm, you know, I'm feeling alone in this, or is anyone else going through this? And that was super helpful to hear back from people. Uh, if I have clients that can text me, and it's that kind of feeling of you're not alone in this. There's so many other people doing the same thing, and that every time you go through an event that is hard, you're going to come at it even stronger. Um, and those are the ones that are like, I just like add, just vision as adding another weight to your weightlifting set. Um, mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, you could be so proud of yourself and wake up so, and that's why I hear from people. When they make it through those nights, they wake up the next morning so happy and so appreciating um, that they did it. And it just makes you feel so much more in control of your life that you are not reactionary to the event. Anything come your way and you get a, you get a pick. You know, are you going to let that derail your intention? And, and especially something that's not that great, don't give it that power. Just say, no way, is this going to be the thing that derails my, you know, my intention? for myself. I love you know, that. And I, I think it's a taking back your power and taking back um, – we all, you know, we want control and we try to control others, but the real control we have is with our own actions and our own way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I love – you know, I think Elizabeth Gilbert, she talking about other people's opinion, but it's true about, um, about these things too, that you can't let a few hours of what someone else thinks of you derail what you think of yourself for the rest of your life. So, you know, if you're at a family gathering – and they have a, you know, but that's true with everything. Like so a few hours of an uncomfortable situation, like why let that derail what like, your whole intention is for you? That gives others so much power.
0: I think too that goes back to what you were just saying of feel the feeling and lose the story. So you might say, I feel uncomfortable right now, but you can lose the story of my family doesn't support me, they've always been this way, mm-hmm. they think I am dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. Whatever the story is. You can just feel just stick to the feeling, okay, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now, what can mm-hmm. I do about it? I'm feeling unloved right I, now. Who can I reach out right. to that love me?
1: Another thing I really um advise is like looking at it kinda of like an anthropologist. Like looking at it, like observing it. And having like looking at it and having compassion for yourself. Like, well no wonder I was I wanted to drink. This is stressful. <laughs> <laughs> These people are horrible. Or this isn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, and to really notice that and to kind of say, like, no wonder. And maybe it is in the future if you can do other things for that holiday. You'll come up with something ahead of time, or maybe it's not the best fit for whatever reason. And there's ways, there's creative ways um, to plan a different thing. But I just think it's like to really kind of have compassion for yourself helps and to see it from that little bit of distance of no wonder our family, this is crazy. (laughs) This is a really unhealthy dynamic. And mm-hmm. to acknowledge it and to acknowledge that part of you that wants to escape and maybe plan something for yourself that's really huge. Like, you know, you're getting through this really hard night, and and what can we do instead What are we're going to look forward to? Because right. this is major to get through this really hard night. So,
0: like, promise yourself a big old cappuccino and an almond
1: cream yeah. in the morning. Yeah. It's like, what treat? Reward. can you, what self-care can you give yourself? Like, I'm going to just have, this is, I'm going to associate with something positive because I'm a warrior doing hard things, getting through this. Right.
0: And there's another muscle that delayed gratification muscle, right? Of, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to promise mm-hmm. and, myself something good tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and you could I want to yeah, backtrack gonna...
0: because like just I just cracked the joke. Oh, these people are horrible. But what I really <laughs> find myself doing more and more is seeing, you know, the, all the tools that I've learned of like. Oh, triangulation. You know, when people talk about someone who's not there or other codependency traits, and I just, you know, I sometimes, like you say, be an anthropologist and say, like, oh, these are the lessons I've learned. These guys just haven't got there yet. It's not my job. Mm-hmm. I'm not on their journey, and um, and then to try and think of something that's good about that person. Um, mm-hmm. We don't always have to be just um, kind of focusing on the negativity, but. I, I feel, feel like compassion. I had to say because I cracked you.
1: a joke. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but compassion helps you. When you're being compassionate to yourself, then you can kind of have compassion. Well, yeah, they are in a different place than you. And that doesn't mean that we need to be there too. Right. And you can ha- yeah. see compassionately. You can say, you know, we don't all have to be the same. And, in fact, you know, like you being different, or if, they, if anyone gives you a bad time, it's like you know you best, and they don't have to understand
0: That is true. And it isn't necessarily a reflection of your, it isn't at all a reflection of your worthiness, whether or not the people
1: no. in your family of origin
0: get you, support you, or, or really understand you. And that's why all.
1: it's so savvy for people to reach out for support in whatever way they can to people who do get it, because there are so many people on this path that you're not alone, but often the people in our, in our direct worlds don't get it, and so really it's a savvy thing. Like, however you can get support and connection, just reach for it, because once you know there's other women doing the exact other people all over do the exact same thing, I mean, you can just think of them and just know, like, oh, you know, I know Jean's over there doing this too. <laughs> She's doing this, and I'm not alone in it,
0: and I love that. So speaking of that, so speaking of finding support, um, I, I won't say here on air how to get into the online group because it's a secret group. But listeners who want to learn more about that group can message me and I can tell you how to find it. And uh, they can also reach you. Kelly, what is your website? Tell us
1: your website and anything else that you want to share with listeners. Um, Oh, my website is shiningbrightrecovery.com. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm just super happy to do this kind of work because the clients I work with are just the most – amazing women in their own right. And I really feel like people I run into this path are, are we've talked about, like fellow seekers. Like they're, they're people who are just not willing to settle and they really want to be their best selves. And they're, they're really feeling listening to that voice that wants to live in alignment. And so I just think anyone who's thinking about it or um, just to really recognize that instead of something to feel bad about, that, oh, I'm going to give this up, it's something to be super proud of so that you are listening to that voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the voice of, of your growth and um, I really that's what I'm proud of of being like out loud about this because I do feel like it's something that we should be really pat on the back for because I feel like um, in the, you know, my, the contemplative psychology world it really it is a warrior's work to kind of walk into something that's not easy um, and it'd be so much easier to stay the same and um, not have to make the choice that people question in our world But I think all the women I work with are leaders in their own right because it's really lighting the path for so many others, the more of us that are doing this.
0: I'm glad you said that because, you know, that takes me back to the stigmatization of addiction and recovery. And I really thought that by becoming sober, I was sort of joining the loser club and Mm -hmm. that if I walked into a meeting, I was just going to find all these broken sad sacks. And Mm -hmm. if people found out about, me being sober, they were going to characterize me as being, I don't know, just some kind of bad person. And the fact is, if you do walk into a meeting, 12 Steps, Smart Recovery, um, Life Ring, um, there's so many different programs. Or if you go to a sharing circle or you go to a retreat or you start working with somebody and making connections, joining an online group, you're right. That's who you find. They're not they're not broken, sad people. They're warriors, and they're really mm-hmm. cool people that are really, like, trying to kind of lit- walk in their in their best self and, and mm-hmm. live in a higher consciousness and just mm-hmm. do a better job of this life thing. And, like, who doesn't want to be part of that society? That's, like, that's mm-hmm. really the table you want to eat your lunch at. So yeah. I yeah, feel it's like it's such a wonderful way to reframe how we see ourselves.
1: Um, mm-hmm. such a delightful it really flips discovery. the script. Yeah, reframing it. Yeah, reframing it to really realize because, yeah, I think that the old messaging that you had to be really bad to give something up. And so most people that they're they're like, oh, I'm not that bad. But it's like, you don't have to be that bad. You have to like when you recognize something, like if you recognize that I was like, you know, if you recognize gluten is causing you discomfort. (laughs) Right. You would be like, oh, I feel better. I don't eat gluten. Um, if you realize alcohol is causing you discomfort and, and taking away from your life and hurting you in any way, which you're getting these niggles about, like, uh, like that is just the same. Like, you can, it's not a required thing for living. So if you give that up to feel better, it's a gift to yourself. hmm hmm A better way to live. Yeah, so it's a reframing of, like, I'm moving towards this healthier life. I'm moving towards who I want to be. And I remember, when, you know, the end of me for me was really like I really wanted to live in alignment, and the two things that had to change were my marriage and my drinking for me to do that. And there is a feeling of it's ominous, it's big, cause it's such big changes, and it's scary. And I guess the biggest part for me to share is, is I'm so thankful that I didn't stay stuck in that scared place forever. I stayed there for a while. I stayed there for longer than. Longer than I look back and I think, wow, well, why didn't you do that sooner? Because of course now I could say that. At the time though, it was super super scary to um, let go, and um, and I just think, you know, we you can't, can't know all, like I said all the good that can come by letting go, um, and we need to make room for, for the change in our life, and so really that um, I was sharing today about this that lobster story, which I've also sent some people that video of that where you know, lobsters won't grow until they feel stressed. The way you need a new shell is because you feel this discomfort and pain if you're a lobster. And, so, and then when they do start to grow new shells, it's like this, the new shell at first is, isn't solid. It's tender and, and raw. And, and then finally they'll get a solid new shell. And then they'll probably feel subtle for a while. And then new growth comes, and they feel uncomfortable and stressed. <laughs> and the cycle starts again. Ah. And it only stops when they die, right? And so really when we start to feel stressed and our, like our lives aren't fitting the way they used to or parts of our lives aren't, instead of being freaked out that we're doing something wrong, how helpful to see it as a natural sign of growth.
0: Right, an invitation for change.
1: And, yeah, and just with curiosity. Like maybe something's not fitting anymore. Maybe there are some things I need to adjust. And that's not because we're doing anything wrong. It's because we're alive and we're lucky enough to be growing older and having, you know, new experiences.
0: Well, I think that is the perfect place to end our discussion today.
1: And I will <laughs> say,
0: Kelly Beck, this is why I love you so much. Because you always leave me with a beautiful image to just keep in my head for a few days and and start a new thought. So thank you. Thank you for your time today.
1: Oh thank you. It's so fun to talk with you here yeah.
0: everywhere. Here and everywhere. Hopefully yeah. somewhere soon we'll get together again. Well, listeners, uh, you have been listening to my discussion with Kelly Beck of Shining Bright Recovery. Her website is shiningbrightrecovery.com. And if you want to learn more about the online support group that she runs, uh, you can either message her through her website or send me an email, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and we will hook you up with that support. It is a women's-only group, so sorry, guys, but I do have another support group that is welcoming of men. So, guys, if you're listening and you want some online support, send me a message. I will get you connected. And um, I guess that leaves us at the end of our show. So I thank everyone for listening. I'm happy to be back on air. And I will be back next week with Andrea Owen of Your kick Life. So that's it for now. Until next time, everyone, take good care.
2: I own it, I did it, not proud of.